Sometimes I really need help writing a sermon. My job as a preacher has three parts. First, I have to understand the biblical text literally and grammatically. Second, I have to understand what the text meant in its original historical circumstances. And then third, I need to hear what the Holy Spirit says about how this text applies to our congregation today. It was the second part, what the text means in its original historical context, that had me stumped this week. And what threw me was what Paul says in Philippians 3, 6. Let me quote the whole rambling sentence which begins back in verse 4. Paul writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm fine with all of that until we get to that last bit where Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Is Paul saying that he never violated the law of Moses? Is Paul saying that by the standard of the law given at Mount Sinai that he was sinless? Because it sure does sound like he's saying that. Now, if you are an evangelical Christian, there are a couple of verses that you have had drilled into your brain. Verses like, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. And none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, 10. And how about, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned away. Together they have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. A fundamental assumption of evangelical Christianity is that every single person is a sinner in the sight of God, and that every single person needs a Savior, and that only Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law of Moses. So what in the world are we supposed to do with Paul claiming that according to the righteousness of the law, he was blameless? I needed some help with the historical context of this passage. And so I turned to R.C. Sproul and to John Calvin for a little bit of help. Here's what Sproul writes. In calling himself blameless, the apostle is not confessing that he was sinless before coming to Christ. The term blameless is a standard description of the old covenant saints who were exemplary in keeping the Mosaic law. A standard description of old covenant saints who were exemplary in keeping the Mosaic law. David applies this term blameless 
to himself in Psalm 18, where we read, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, David, of course, knew that he wasn't sinless. One need only read Psalm 51, the great confessional psalm in which David says that he was sinful from the day he was born. And yet David is able to use this term, blameless, for himself. Sproul argues that this term applied to, quote, those who kept the festivals and the Sabbaths, who tried to put the commandments into daily practice, who offered the proper sacrifices to atone for transgressions. But although such individuals were worthy of imitation, blameless individuals such as David and Zechariah were still sinners, end quote. Regarding David, the prophet Samuel says to King Saul, uh, who will be replaced by David very soon, uh, Samuel says, Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Okay, this is what Samuel says to Saul about David who's going to replace him. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man worthy of imitation, but David was still a sinner, which the prophet Samuel lays out in great detail just a little bit later in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where David's debacle with Bathsheba is recounted in great detail. Regarding Zechariah, Uh, The Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptizer, here's what we read in the Gospel of Luke. In the days of Herod, there was a priest named Zechariah, and he had a wife, Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth are admirable people, worthy of invitation for sure, but in the first chapter of Luke, we not only hear them called blameless, we also witness Zechariah sinning by disbelieving the word of God from the mouth of the angel Gabriel, and then being punished for it. Gabriel tells Zechariah that like Abraham, he is going to receive a child in his old age from his wife who has been barren all these long years. And Zechariah does not believe the word of the Lord to him. And for his disbelief, and what sin is more primary than not believing the word of God, for his disbelief, Zechariah is struck dumb by the angel, this individual whom Luke calls blameless. According to Sproul, the term blameless is a standard description of old covenant saints who were exemplary in keeping the Mosaic law. Blameless, but not sinless. People we should imitate, but people who still need a Savior. Here's what Sproul says. 
Such blamelessness remains a worthy goal for God's people today. Trouble only arises when sinners start believing that their general conformity to divine standard makes a claim upon God that we deserve to be declared righteous by our works. Our blamelessness is not enough to save us. Therefore, those who think blamelessness is sufficient to get them into the kingdom, such as the pre-Christian Paul, are utterly lost until they rely upon God's grace and Christ alone. End quote. Now, Calvin puts the matter very succinctly in his commentary on this passage. He writes, Paul here speaks of that righteousness which would satisfy the common opinion of mankind. Blamelessness is a righteousness that would satisfy the common opinion of mankind. Blamelessness means blameless in the sight of other people, not necessarily in the sight of God. Blameless means living well enough that your neighbors think that you're a good person. Blamelessness is an admirable thing to achieve. It is a worthy goal. And Paul, prior to his encounter with Christ, prior to his conversion, was blameless in this way. So, thanks to Sproul and thanks to Calvin in putting to bed my concerns about this passage, this concern that perhaps Paul was claiming to be sinless. He's not. He was a pretty darn good guy. We can admit that. He was better than your average Jew. He worked really hard to keep the law of Moses. When it comes to righteous obedience to the law of God, Paul was pretty much at the top of the heap of humans. But Paul's point here is that even being the most righteous member of the chosen people of God, with all of the benefits and all of the blessings that that entails, all of that Paul was willing to throw away. All of that Paul considered rubbish so that he might instead know Christ and know a righteousness that comes from God. Paul had a kind of righteousness of his own. There was some sense in which Paul was a good guy, a religious guy, an honorable guy, a rule-following guy. He had a righteousness of his own making, and maybe his level of righteousness was high enough that he could rightly apply to himself the term blameless, which Sproul calls a standard description of the Old Covenant saints who were exemplary in keeping the Mosaic Law. But keep in mind that even if Paul is blameless in that sort of way, Paul still says about himself in the epistle to the Romans, quote, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Human sinfulness is deeper than merely failing to follow certain rules. Paul puts his finger on the perversity of human sinfulness. Even when we want to do the right thing, we often find ourselves doing the wrong thing. Who hasn't had that experience? 
The solution to our sin problem is not just turning over a new leaf. It's not just doubling down and trying harder. What we need is not more willpower or greater resolve. What we need is to be delivered from this body of death. Sin is baked in to who we are as fallen creatures. There is no amount of personal effort that's going to change our fundamental reality. There's no amount of work or willpower that will turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. There's no amount of human righteousness, even a righteousness as refined as Paul's, that will make us right with God, that will make us meet the divine standard. And that's because our human nature, the very way that we operate naturally and normally, is bent and fallen. What we need is not greater effort. That will only lead to more of the same. What we need is to be delivered from, taken out of, taken away from our fallen nature. And that is what Paul found in Christ. Because by union with Christ, Paul discovered that Christ's nature, Christ's righteousness became his nature and his righteousness, his old man, his old nature began to die and began to be replaced with a new man and a new nature. Now this is a spiritual mystery, but nothing could be truer that in Christ we are born again. We're made new creatures. The past is gone and the promise of the fulfillment and the glory are in the future. By faith we are united to Christ, and when we're united to Christ, our old, twisted, bent nature is dissolved by Christ's perfect, eternal nature. Who we were is taken apart piece by piece and is replaced by who we're becoming. And what we're becoming is the very image of Christ himself. We are going to need a perfect righteousness to be able to stand before God on Judgment Day. God does not grade on a curve. God will not overlook our shortcomings. God will be 100% faithful to his unchanging law. And by our own activities and efforts, we will never attain the righteousness we need to be able to stand before God. We can never attain it, but we can receive it passively as a gift from God in faith. Here's what Paul writes. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now let me draw your attention to two little prepositions in that passage. In Christ and from God. In Christ and from God. The righteousness that will stand us in good stead with God on Judgment Day is not our righteousness. Rather, it is a righteousness from God. It comes from God. It is God's own righteousness. Where and what is that righteousness from God? Well, it is the perfect sinless life of Jesus himself. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness by living a perfectly obedient life. So the righteousness that we need is from God. 
It's the righteousness of Jesus. And the way that we get that righteousness is by being in Christ. By faith we are in Christ, by faith we are united to Christ, and by this union with Christ, in faith, the righteousness of Christ, which is a righteousness from God, becomes ours. That righteousness alone will save us. We're not saved because God ignores His law. We're not saved because God gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card. We're not saved because God is soft-hearted and sentimental. We are saved when we stand before God in a perfect righteousness. Not one that we've created actively ourselves, but one that we have received passively from Christ by faith in Christ. That's the core of the gospel. That's what we need to understand. Because many people are on the highway to hell thinking that they're going to be saved because, you know, they're pretty good. Because they're not as bad as some people are. Because, I don't know, maybe they're righteous by the standards of the world. But the world will not be our judge on Judgment Day. So why should we care what the world thinks? God, who is unchanging, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, will be our judge. And so, knowing what God says about that judgment is all important. All important. And here's what God says in His Word. It's rather simple. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. All of us have sinned, so all of us already have earned the first part of this little verse, the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news of the gospel. But then the second part of that verse has the good news of the gospel. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life. The total opposite of death. That's what we're shooting for. Eternal life. And as it turns out, the greatest prize of all prizes is not an award for a well-run race. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Well, then, please tell me how I can get this gift. The answer is through Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life comes to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. Paul gave up everything he had in this world so he might cling to that one thing of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. Paul suffered the loss of all things and counted everything that he had acquired as rubbish. Because he had gained Christ and found in Christ this righteousness that would save him. Paul knew that he was soon to receive the most valuable, the most all-surpassing possession a human can possibly have, namely resurrection from the dead and eternal life with Christ. Paul is writing this letter from the cusp of possessing what's been promised to him in Christ. He writes this letter from jail. He's soon to be executed. He's standing at the doors of eternity and he's celebrating this gift that he's already received. Eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he was close to death. None of us knows what death will come for us, which is why we need to be ready every day. Let me mention three deaths that we've had in the HBPC family this past week. Minkaya, 
died this past week, back in 1948, HVPC member Nate Saint traveled with a group of missionaries to Ecuador to bring the gospel to the Warani tribe deep in the Amazon basin, and Nkaya killed Nate Saint, this fellow from this church, and killed four others as well, and killed them with a spear. Like the Apostle Paul, Nate Saint died bringing the gospel to people who hadn't yet heard the good news and Nate's fellow laborers in the gospel didn't give up just because five had died. In time, Nkaya came to know Christ. He eventually came to this sanctuary where I'm standing this morning and brought his testimony of faith before this congregation. Minkaya died this past week and now he is in the presence of Almighty God. He is also in the presence of the man that he had killed in his own twisted ignorance. Earlier this week, Isabel Mitchell died. She was a member of Frankfurt Presbyterian Church for more than a half a century. She actively participated in uh, this congregation when she moved to Gloria Day Manor. There's no word yet about when uh, her funeral service uh, will be. And we, we also learned uh, that Melvin Floyd, a missionary that we supported for many, many years here in this congregation, uh, passed away uh, recently, and we have yet to hear about when there might be a service for him. On Thursday of this week, I went to visit with Connie and Bud Osuch. They were at home, uh, side by side, each one of them in a hospital bed. Thursday was their 65th wedding anniversary. Bud is recovering from a fall. He uh, injured his uh, hip and he was in the hospital for a while. Connie uh, has been bedridden uh, for two and a half years. Um, and it seemed like she was coming down to her last days. And so the family uh, called me and told me that uh, I should come and visit. And so I donned rubber gloves and a face mask and was able to spend a sweet time with them, praying and uh, reading the Psalms reading the promises about the resurrection that we have in the Word of God. All of us gathered in that room on Thursday knew that the next encounter between Connie and her Savior would be in the resurrection, and that was just around the corner for her, and so we were looking forward. On Friday, Connie did die just two days ago now, after having spent a long life united to Christ and faith. For her, the end of this life is not the end of the story. If we are united to Christ, we will also be raised uh, with Christ. That is the sure promise. Paul knew this reality in a particularly keen way because Paul had the unusual experience of having uh, met the resurrected Christ face to face. I mean, think about that for a second. Paul met Jesus face to face. Paul received his instruction in the gospel directly from the resurrected Christ. No wonder he was so fearless in the face of death. No wonder he was so confident in the righteousness that he had received. Not in the righteousness of his own efforts, 
but the righteousness that he had by union with Christ. In the end, Paul happily put everything on the line so that he wouldn't miss out on the greatest possession of all bodily resurrection and eternal life with Christ. Have you put everything on the line too? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone? Are you counting on His righteousness to be what stands you in good stead on the day of judgment? Have you been united with Christ in faith? In a few minutes we will share the Lord's Supper out in the parking lot. That sacrament is a memorial of the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins, the sacrifice which made our entry into eternal life possible. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This day, if you are not certain about what will happen to you after you die, I plead with you to not rest this day until you have made peace with God. You've heard the gospel. Now, believe it and stand upon it. Confess your sins to God and ask to be forgiven in the name of Christ. Ask that you will know Christ and that you'll be united to Christ and that you'll be found in Christ. Ask that Christ's righteousness would be counted as your own because you have no hope in your own righteousness. Do that today. And share the Lord's Supper with me today, knowing that while you have not yet crossed over from mortal life into eternal life, eternal life and Christ's perfect righteousness are yours by faith in Jesus Christ. The final sentence from our reading this morning from Philippians chapter 3 really captured my attention and probably deserves its own sermon, but let me just read it for you again. Paul says... I have not already obtained this. I am not already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. May Christ Jesus make you his own this day. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we love your Savior. We love your word, which is true, 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 true. We pray that you bind it to our hearts. We pray that we would believe and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name.